0: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the subject of a recent piece in The Atlantic and uh, uh, a scientific report inside PLOS Biology. And we're speaking with Dr. Alan Bennett, who's a distinguished professor of plant sciences at the University of California, Davis. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Bennett. Thanks, Kevin. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's really great that we were able to do this because to me, this is one of the most exciting stories that maybe someday we'll look back on and say, I remember when. Um, I really think this is a, a fun story and, and a really interesting one in many dimensions. And it has to do with how, uh, how your collaborative group identified a corn variety, which was kind of able to take care of itself or at least feed itself in one, give itself some nutrition in one specific area. And we'll talk about this in detail, but let's talk about nitrogen you know, it's it's 70 some percent of the air we breathe. It's everywhere in the biosphere. So why do we have a nitrogen problem in agriculture? Yeah. Yeah. Nitrogen is
1: a super interesting element. Um, it's very important for biological systems. Nitrogen is a key component of DNA, RNA, and proteins, the basic building blocks of uh, living organisms. So with Without nitrogen, we wouldn't really have life as we know it. Um, And we wouldn't have food either because agriculture and crops are dependent on nitrogen. Um, And as you said, 70% of the atmosphere is nitrogen, um, but we can't use it. Uh, Plants and animals can't use the nitrogen in the atmosphere. It's, It's chemically locked up. And so there are processes to unlock that nitrogen um and convert it into ammonia, which then is a reduced form, usable by plants, by animals, uh, etc. And there are a couple of ways to do that. Um one way is a a the what's called the Haber-Bosch mechanism. This is a industrial process, uses very high pressure, very high temperature to convert atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia. And this process was uh, invented uh, almost exactly 100 years ago. Uh, both Haber and Bosch each won Nobel Prizes for this um, process. Uh, and they really should be the most famous scientists ever because uh, without that process, about a third of the population uh, would not be able to survive uh, because that nitrogen is critical for crop production. So Haber-Bosch nitrogen... It's a good thing, um, but sometimes uh, there's too much of a good thing. And in the case of nitrogen fertilizers, uh, first of all, they're expensive. They're expensive in terms of cost to the farmers. Uh, They're also environmentally expensive. The way they're produced with high temperature and high pressure uses a lot of fossil fuel and releases, uh, consequently, a lot of greenhouse gases and the way nitrogen fertilizer is used, only about half of it is taken up by the crop and the rest leaches down into the groundwater and eventually makes its way to places like uh, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, where it uh, uh, eutrophies or causes environmental uh, damage in these in these waterways. So so Haberbosch is not a bad thing, um, but it is expensive in, in a couple of important ways. Um the alternative are biological processes, uh, to capture nitrogen out of the atmosphere and make it available to plants. Um, and that's some of the work that that we did.
0: Well, I know that for a a long time we've talked about legumes and legumes can fix nitrogen, no problem. And, uh, or, or, is this still because of associations with bacteria? Uh, yeah. Legumes, uh, are
1: really interesting. If you look at, uh, When their capacity to fix nitrogen first evolved, it was uh, relatively recent. And so only that one group of uh, plants has the capacity to form these very uh, specific associations with bacteria. And the legumes uh, provide a home for these bacteria, and for this symbiosis where the legume provides sugar and energy to the bacteria, uh, the bacteria provide fixed nitrogen and provide nitrogen back to the legume. So it's, uh, it's really important. And the only problem is it's very, very limited to this uh, one, one group of plants and legumes are important. Of course, soybeans are a legume, super important crop in the world. Um, But that same process, uh, doesn't, is not available to some of the other big crops. And those are the cereal crops like corn, uh,
0: like wheat, like rice. Yeah. I remember back in the 1980s, maybe early 1980s, I actually wrote a paper for class about how we could just move the genes from peanuts or soybeans into things like maize and rice. And, um, back then it seemed pretty easy. (laughs) And so that's all we'd have to do. So why are those kinds of approaches not practical?
1: Well, they just haven't uh, been possible. And you're right. In the uh, early 80s, that that was the dream of agricultural biotechnology. And a lot of uh, startup companies raised a lot of money on that. Turns out that it's just um, a little bit too complicated using the kinds of gene transfer technologies uh, that we have now. There's, it continues, though, to be worked on, and there’s quite a bit of money being invested into uh, actually uh, transferring the genes or some, some subset of genes into MAize. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is uh, providing funding to some big uh, projects to do that. So um, so it may be possible someday, Kevin, just not in our lifetime.
0: <laughs> I've seen a few talks on that. And, uh, from, uh, uh, Jill Zor Olroyd and, um, you know, Ed Buckler gave a nice talk about this recently too. He says it can't even be done in plants and let's just do it in microbes. And he's got some really great ideas, but this work was really exciting. The work that was in PLOS Biology, because it has so many interesting facets about plant biology and ecology and domestication and so many interesting facets. So before we dive into that, uh, what are maize land races? Yeah. So uh,
1: maize originated in Mexico, and there's uh, there are some early progenitors of uh, maize. They're usually referred to as teosintes, And for one day, about uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, there were some key genetic mutations, and actually relatively a few. I think it's estimated it's about five uh, major events that uh, that domesticated corn, and this led to corn that had a had a bigger ear, more kernels, uh, etc. So, following uh, domestication, there were pockets of corn scattered throughout uh, Mexico, and these are the land races, and they existed have existed for thousands of years, but in a very isolated, uh, geographic area. So they're not, uh, uh, available for crossing with conventional corn or some of the other modern corn. Um, but they have nevertheless, since that early domestication have continued to evolve over thousands of years. And because they're, uh, grown by indigenous people in those regions, um, they're constantly being selected, and when I say selected, it's not really in the scientific way that we think about selection using, you know, genetic markers or molecular markers. But clearly, uh, the corn that uh, produces well, uh, that maybe grows faster, has uh, uh, bigger yield. Those—that's the corn that's going to where they're going to save the seed and grow those in the next year. So there's really this uh, continuous selection. Um, That whole process of selection and the genetic resources themselves are uh, what the world refers to as traditional knowledge. And this is the kind of uh, knowledge that accumulates over centuries um, and that really may capture some very interesting things. The thing about land races is uh, they're disappearing because as these small communities become less isolated as roads are built to those communities as those roads get paved. Um, farmers are beginning to adapt new uh, methods of farming and maybe entirely new crops. So we're finding that the land races are disappearing and the traditional knowledge along with them is disappearing as well. So it's one of the interesting dimensions of this uh, project and this story that, you know, if we hadn't been there when we were, Um, you would never see this, may never see this trait. And it may have just been lost forever um, as farmers begin to fertilize with chemical fertilizer, with Haber-Bosch fertilizer. It would have made this trait uh, very
0: difficult to observe. The land races we'll discuss are from a place called Sierra Mije, And where is that? And what are the nitrogen conditions like? I mean, do the indigenous peoples there have fertilizers? Yeah.
1: Another really interesting aspect. So Sierra Mije is a region in the uh, mountains around Oaxaca, Mexico. And this is uh, near to the regions of uh, domestication of corn. Um, And in that region, the Sierra Mije, it refers to the geographical region. It also refers to the indigenous people who live there. So it really has two... um, Uh, two types of significance, one defining the geography, but also the uh, people who had maintained this traditional knowledge. Um, The traditional way of farming there is without any fertilizers, without any chemical inputs, and that was part of why we went there. We had a hypothesis um, that if one of these land races was to evolve for thousands of years in a region that was very low in soil nitrogen, that it may be driven to evolve relationships with bacteria that could fix the nitrogen. And I have to say that this is not a new idea, and it's uh, actually uh, an old idea that was published by a colleague of yours, uh, Kevin Eric Triplett. Oh, sure. Um, And he um, had this uh, paper published in 1996, which said, you know, uh, nitrogen fixation in corn is the holy grail. And, um, in order to solve this problem, you may have to go look for bacteria that live inside corn, uh, in the regions where maize originated. So, so it's sort of an old idea that's been around. Um, we, we pursued it and I met Eric. Uh, just last week, actually, for the first time, and he said, "Darn it! Why didn't I do this?"
0: <laughs> yeah the the the, uh, the science halls of broken dreams, right? <laughs> but it, but it's a lot like the story of tectonic You remember the uh, the transitional fossil that they they knew this thing had to exist, and they said, "Well, if it exists, it's probably in these Devonian shales in this part of the world." And then they went there and found it. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting parallel. We'll take a short break here. We're speaking with Professor Alan Bennett from University of California, Davis, about the recent discovery of corn that has adaptive mechanisms to help it self-fertilize using nitrogen from the atmosphere. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public, but in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller monthly donations. So if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash No noideasmedia and consider being a patron. Thanks very much.
0: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today talking with Professor Alan Bennett from University of California, Davis, And we're discussing uh, the recent discovery that was uh, talked about in the Atlantic as well as PLOS Biology about corn, or actually land races of corn, that actually can harness nitrogen from the environment to be able to fertilize themselves in essence, along with some clever little partners we'll discuss here in a moment. But to lay the whole story, then, we have this region of poor nitrogen conditions. We have indigenous people who have been growing these land races that haven't separated geographically very far from the center of origin of maize and uh, have been cultivating plants that you might predict would maybe have some adaptations to allow them to thrive in low nitrogen environments. So, what exactly happened? What's different about these plants that allowed them to be productive in this rather um, inhospitable region?
1: Well, these uh, maize plants have very uh, interesting developmental adaptations. And if you were to go to the Sierra Mihe and look at this corn, you would immediately know that you're not in Iowa. This is not the kind of corn that's grown in Iowa. Um, It's about... uh, 15 feet or five meters tall, uh, very large. And it is, has these very prominent, uh, aerial roots. And so of course we know most roots are underground, uh, but this corn has roots that are also above ground. Um, so for several, um, feet or a meter or so above ground, uh, you see these aerial roots, uh, emerge from the stem. And so, you know, we thought that was interesting. turns out these aerial roots also secrete a mucilage, a, a gel-like substance. And um, you can actually sit there and watch it drip off. I mean, it's very prominent. We published, a, in the paper we published, we included a picture of it just because it is so striking. Um, and it turns out um, that this mucilage is the home to a group of bacteria uh, that collectively fix uh, are able to fix nitrogen. And because it's fixing nitrogen uh, in this region right around the aerial root, uh, once that nitrogen is fixed, taken out of the atmosphere, it can then be taken up directly into these uh, aerial roots and distributed around the plant. Um, so this is the, um, really the important feature that, that we focused on, And focused on that bacterial community to try to understand what it's doing and, and really what, what it's comprised of.
0: So, you know, we, we, roots normally do secrete a mucilage and, and this is what helps them kind of lubricate their way through the soil and also establish these uh, connections with their, uh, with their, uh, bacterial symbionts. And so it, it would make sense that maybe these aerial roots, you know, would, would, would be the home of the same kind of thing. But what is exactly in this mucilaginous compound? And I do ask, I do think that people should check out the picture because it's really striking how this looks. It's kind of almost kind of scary looking, but it, um, but it really makes sense. It's a really beautiful picture. And so what's in that stuff that the bacteria like? Yeah. So uh, we know a lot about that. Um,
1: the mucilage is uh, very rich in sugars. It turns out that it's uh, a complex sugar. It's very, very large, made up of hundreds of individual sugars. Uh, but the interesting thing is the terminal sugars are uh, very rich in arabinose and fucose, And these are sugars that are not that, not that common. Um, but what we know is that, uh, some of the bacteria are able to, to cleave off, break off these terminal sugars. And when it breaks them off, then they become available for other bacteria to use as an energy source. And this is, um, one thing that's really key for a, a plant to harbor nitrogen fixing bacteria. It needs to, the plant needs to be providing an energy source. So this complex uh, sugar provides that energy source to nitrogen-fixing bacteria. The other thing the mucilage, uh, that we noted about the mucilage, is that uh, it's very low in oxygen. And, you know, you may think that's, you know, who cares? Uh, Well, the enzyme that actually fixes nitrogen is called nitrogenase. And it turns out that nitrogenase is poisoned. Uh, by oxygen, by the oxygen in the atmosphere. So in order to harbor a, or provide a good home for nitrogen fixing bacteria, plant needs to provide these two things, an abundant supply of sugars and low oxygen. And the mucilage uh, does just that. And you mentioned underground roots. Um, So what Uh, we think is that on these aerial roots, this mucilage is, you know, vastly amplified. There's a lot of it, but we have looked in underground roots as well. And uh, you can uh, isolate small amounts of the mucilage, the secretion that you talked about from underground roots. And at least at a superficial level, uh, it has the identical uh, sugar composition. So we think it's possible that while it was easy for us to study the above ground, the aerial roots, because it's so abundant. The same processes may exist in, in underground roots as well. And so that's one thing we really want to look at is, uh, is this more generalized and perhaps occurring in uh, underground roots, or at least has the potential to be occurring in underground roots as well. In that way, you could potentially see how it may work in more conventional corn that doesn't have all these aerial roots.
0: Well, the obvious problem is just less availability to atmospheric nitrogen, and maybe that's why this is so important that it's uh, an aerial root. Yeah,
1: no, that, uh, that could be as well. Although if we look at legumes, for example, um, all of that fixation occurs underground.
0: Oh that's true. Okay. That, that's pretty interesting. So when you did these experiments it, you did like a essentially a microbiome of this mucilage and described the types of bacteria that were there and are they present everywhere or are these bacteria really something that were selected as well that maybe they're just specific for this region?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so and there's a debate about this. Um the by microbiology colleagues uh, think that it's, you know, most likely a very specific uh, microbiome that only exists in Mexico. My plant biology colleagues think that these uh, bacteria are everywhere, and you really just need the right uh, kind of plant in order to select or recruit those (laughs) bacteria. And so one thing I can tell you is we have brought seeds both to here in Davis and also to Madison, Wisconsin and grown them both in the greenhouse and in the field in both places. And we observed the same uh, trait and the same types of microbes. So, so we think that it's uh, not specific to the location in the Sierra Mihe um, and that the microbes may be everywhere and they just need to be recruited. It's possible they're not even the same microbes, um, but they're microbes with the same
0: functionalities. Okay. So the plant biologies, <laughs> plant biologists were right for once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <what> a <laughs> yeah. Take that microbiologist. Yeah. You know, so when you look at this whole process and these aerial roots, how much of this was, um, and I, and we, you kind of touched on it in the beginning. This was really just a product of, uh, human selection, right? I mean, even if it was inadvertent, this appears to be just something that this plant grew better. So this is what people selected.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also possible, and this is one thing we want to look at. Um, that th- you know, this may be a trait uh, that's much more common than we than we realize. If you think about you know uh, plants in nature, native plants that are just out there. Um, you know, nobody's fertilizing those plants. So we may find that this is, is more general. One thing we did observe and report in our paper is that one of the early progenitors of corn, one of the wild Teosinte species, uh, specifically it's called Teosinte mexicana, um, also has aerial roots. Uh, and it also um, has mucilage, but in much, much, much lower abundance. I mean, it's hard to even collect it. But when we do collect it, it also shows the ability to fix nitrogen. So we think that this may have been an ancient trait and may have existed, but then it got amplified through this human selection.
0: And what about the bacteria? So you have these uh, diazotrophic bacteria that can fix nitrogen, but what are they getting from their association with the plant? I can see why bacteria would fix nitrogen. You know, they, they need to get, develop uh, DNA and proteins from somewhere amino acids from somewhere, but what are they gaining from this association with plants?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what they're really gaining is this, uh, are the sugars, the source of sugars. And this is sort of the classic, uh, symbiosis that, uh, the, uh, you know, one, uh, especially with plants because plants, because they do photosynthesis, they can make sugars, uh, directly from sunlight. They're sort of cheap in that sense. And they're providing sugars uh, to the bacteria. The bacteria uh, in turn provide nitrogen. And you're right, a lot of mini bacteria can fix nitrogen. They need it themselves. Um, and But importantly, in this case, the bacteria not only need to fix nitrogen, but they need to secrete it so that it's available to the plant. Um, so we're We're sort of looking at that, and and we have uh, about one thousand five hundred isolates of bacteria uh, from the mucilage and from the maize plant. And then the the problem we're and all of these are nitrogen fixers. The problem we're having is we don't know which ones are the important ones. So we're we're really just starting that process of trying to go through this collection and identify. microbes that may be the most important. And again, we don't think it's one. So if you look at legumes, there's one bacteria that's really important. It's the main thing. We actually think uh, in this corn and in the mucilage that it's a community of microbes uh, that carry out a number of of functions. One function is uh, releasing the, the simple sugars, the monosaccharides. Another function is actively reducing oxygen levels. And then the third function is using those unusual sugars, uh, fucose and arabinose, uh, to fix nitrogen. And this may... Uh, potentially, it could all be in one microbe. Uh, it could be in in three different microbes with different functionalities. Um, it could involve a collection of, of 50. So this is... Um, it gets complicated really fast.
0: (laughs) Well, what makes it even more complicated is the fact that you have corn genetics, which are now playing a role in the formation of these aerial roots and development of the mucilage. So you're you're looking at these two uh, sets of organisms that are involved in this equation. So looking strictly at the corn, is there efforts underway to understand the genes controlling the aerial root formation and with the idea of maybe either breeding it, or using transgenic methods to introduce this into conventional maize?
1: We have started that work. Um, so we have made uh, crosses. A uh, PhD student worked on uh, mapping some of the genes, including those that are responsible for uh, aerial root formation. So we're just beginning to know a little bit about um, where those genes are, are located. Um, interestingly, going back to Teosinte Mexicana, we uh, we have sequenced the genomes of, of this land race. And, and what we can see in the genome is that there are uh, really significant islands of teosinte Mexicana uh, genome that has been introgressed over the centuries as well. And so we're, so we're just starting that work. Um, I think it's, there's potential that it could be bred into uh, conventional corn. Uh, and and we're starting that work. What we'd really like is a a seed company uh, to uh, to try their hand at this. Just because uh, you know we're we're amateurs when it comes to to breeding, and these large corn seed companies um, are the real professionals, and they could uh, do it faster faster and better. So, we'd really like to find a partner who might be interested in uh, um, taking this to the next level.
0: It doesn't seem like you'd have trou- much trouble with that. Uh, it, it seems like also the big companies are the ones who uh, really have sequestered all the elite genetics as well. So if you're going to see this uh, rubber hit the road, they probably are the only game in town to do it. Yeah, But you know, to the flip side, getting away from big companies and going back to the Mihe people – when breakthroughs in this kind of thing happen, so you have a land race that was developed by these indigenous farmers, there's always going to be claims of biopiracy. Like, you know, uh, you know you're know, you taking their resources and now you're going to turn these over to Monsanto. You know, you can hear it already, right? So what assurances have you made with the folks who actually did the selection and did the cultivation of these land races for so many thousands of years? Yeah, so we have uh, worked
1: very closely with the community in a couple of different ways. One, simply to to work in the community uh, required that we, um, you know, give back. And what they really wanted was to, to know what we were doing and uh, what was this science all about. And so we actually had as part of the team a uh, Montessori school teacher, and she worked with the school's um, presented them this information. And, and she actually published a book on the biodiversity of the Sierra Mihe. And this book is not for sale. Um, you can't buy it. It's not available uh, because it was made just for the community. And uh, we printed you know hundreds of copies and it's now in the schools themselves. The teachers use it to uh, talk about biodiversity in their community, and all of the illustrations are done by the school kids themselves. So there was really the social component. In addition to the social component, uh, there's, a, there's a legal dimension. Um, and so we had an agreement with the community that if the corn was ever turned over to Monsanto or anyone else, I guess Monsanto actually doesn't exist anymore, it's Bayer, um, that any benefits that were received would be shared 50 50 with the community. Um, and so this led to what's called a access and benefit sharing agreement. Um, there is this treaty now, it's known as the Nagoya Protocol. And the Nagoya Protocol is uh, it acknowledges that uh, uh, nations and countries are owners of their genetic resources. And that they're in order to have access to those genetic resources, there needs to be some kind of benefit sharing agreement. Um, and so, we have for this project uh, the first Nagoya certificate issued by the Mexican government, and the, the laws that implement the Nagoya protocol um, were just put in place about a year or so ago. So, this was really breaking new ground to get this Nagoya certificate in place. Um, interestingly, the uh, when uh, government uh, agencies were uh, interviewed for some of the by some of the journalists who wrote stories about this um, they said you know this project did it right they went uh, jumped through all the hoops they have all the permits all the agreements and the assurances to share benefits with the uh, with the community so um, so that that was not easy that was one of the real uh, complexities of the of the work overall. Um, But you're right. Uh, We went through all that because we knew that there would be claims of biopiracy and wanted to be sure that we were on uh, a strong ethical foundation.
0: That's really great because it's something that also... It's such a cool story across the board, and it would be horrible for those kinds of claims to really taint this entire process, especially because this could be, at least in my mind, this is an explosive kind of uh, finding, especially when we can put this in the context of the, the rapidity of modern day genetic improvement. that. Uh, moving genes and with gene editing and everything that's going on, it could be very realistic that at least some subset of this technology could be making a way to uh, Midwestern fields within a decade and uh, very good that the folks who did the hard work in the beginning um, would be recognized for that. So really great there if people wanted to learn more about the project or if they wanted to follow this on websites or read more about it what would you recommend as the best sources
1: well i think the best uh uh journalistic article that uh, is the one you mentioned at the start it's an article in the atlantic and uh maybe we can maybe you can post the url to uh, uh to your website um other than that uh you know do google search it'll pop up everywhere there's lots of uh there's a long uh, Twitter string um, on this. I, there are thousands and thousands of uh, tweets. Interestingly, the paper, it's been out about a month. It's been downloaded over 20,000 times. So the paper itself is uh, published in an open access journal. It's free free to anyone in uh, uh, PLOS Biology. So the paper itself is is easily accessible.
0: And I will post all those links. That sounds great. Well, Professor Alan Bennett, thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. And thank you very much for your time today. It's a really exciting story. And I think is the beginning of a very exciting chapter in plant biology and agriculture. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Kevin. Nice talking to you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes, tell a friend, share the the exciting stories of science, especially this one, because this is just another way that uh, we're marrying domestication with modern technology and maybe seeing consequences which can have profound impacts on the farm and the environmental impact of farming. My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science.